Hello and welcome to today's episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, CEO and founder of Exaptic, a robotics company based in Melbourne. We specialize in assistive robots changing people's lives. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you all to Johanna Austin. Jo is an amazing young lady who, amongst other achievements, is also a helicopter pilot. Jo, welcome and thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Nikki. I'm so excited to be on. I've never been on a podcast. I feel like I've made it now that I'm on a podcast. <laughs> you made it. You're on my podcast. <laughs> Listen, I, I just launched uh, Dr. Amanda Caples yesterday, so I don't know if you listened to the episode, but certainly she's just a phenomenal woman. I haven't yet. I absolutely love what you're doing. Um, you know, it's, yeah, I think it's a wonderful thing to start to try to shed light on all this amazing work that's happening around the place. So, um, you know, I, yeah, I can't wait to listen to it. Oh, excellent. You know, I think um, I'm a cog, uh, like a cog in a big wheel of everyone just doing their bit just to highlight, as you say, because it's, I think it's an industry that's not really uh, well known or understood in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I could get on a bit of a rant about this pretty quickly, but I think, you know, uh, robotics and automation generally, you know, pretty foundational, I think, to a lot of Australian primary industries that, you know, that understanding is certainly driving a lot of what I'm doing now. And I think, um, you know, it's it's a great cause to try to highlight to Australia what's out there, um, you know, what amazing work can be leveraged in all the industries where we really need it. Well, maybe this be the first of many podcasts because I think once the audience knows about you, you're going to be asked to come and talk to kids at schools and do all sorts of other appearances. Please contact me. I will act as your manager. Yeah. <laughs> we'll start out the business detail. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, no offense, but for someone so young or so young looking, you've just achieved like an enormous amount. I, I stand in awe of you when I listen to everything you've done. Tell us a little bit about your journey and and how you've ended up about where you are today yeah I mean I, I honestly it's funny like when you say that because I don't feel young or like I've achieved that much but I'm <laughs> happy to take the compliment that I look young um I mean you know life story in you know the first question of a podcast I'll try to like keep it short which is is hard but um you know I, I grew up in Canberra um the youngest of five kids actually um which you know you might think my parents were religious having so many kids no my mum just decided she loved babies um but you know quite a technical family um and a little bit of a trailblazer family in that uh, both my parents were computer programmers they actually met um getting trained up as programmers by defense in the 70s and um in the end my mum had the big trailblazer career and it was my dad that stayed home um and raised the last three kids including me so um, you know, I'm really proud of my parents when I look back on that because, um, you know, talking to my dad a little bit and getting to know him now as an adult, I realised how much um, he dealt with as well as my mum, you know, being in this unconventional gender domains. Um, and then, yeah, my older siblings, you know, pretty much stayed with technical fields as well. You know, we've got an engineer, an air traffic controller, geospatial scientist and uh, actually a marketing manager, though she was better at physics than me. I think she just really the creative path really called to her. Um, so yeah, I was around, you know, technical family as I grew up. Um, and one of our hobbies as a family was motor racing um, and specifically rallying. So I think Colin McRae, you know, on the dirt in forests, um, that was what my family did. Um, and because of that, I grew up with a real love of cars and race cars specifically. Um, and then I also ended up by the time I was a teenager, um, pretty obsessed with aeroplanes and started from watching the movie Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a, there's a scene once they've, you know, in that movie, this is the one with Ben Affleck and Josh Harnett, 
uh, where you know the zeros have uh, have come in and are starting to dogfight with the the P40 Kitty Hawks. And I just love those Kitty Hawks. They you know they were so beautiful. The shots were amazing. And I was just automatically in love with airplanes after watching that. I think I was 14. I saw it in the cinema. And after that, I was going to be a fighter pilot. I was going to be a Formula One driver. I was going to be um, a zoologist. I was pretty obsessed with animals. I still am. I just didn't chase that path. Um, I was playing a lot of tennis, actually. I was a good junior tennis player. So, I was, you know, I was going to be the world's first fighter pilot, Formula One champion, Australian Open champion. You know, that was that was what I was like when I was a teenager. Um, and anyway, through school, I um, I did pretty well. And I, you know, I held on to that love of airplanes um, and race cars. And I couldn't choose when I got to the point where I had to, you know, choose an academic future. I, I didn't know whether to go aerospace or automotive. Um, and so I chose mechanical engineering because I knew that would open up a path for both and potentially other industries too. So was a solid bet from a career prospects in engineering point of view. Um, so I moved to Melbourne, went to RMIT, did some really cool race car design through their former SAE team. Um, and at the end of my degree, I promised myself that the only desk job I would work um, once I graduated was aerospace. And in fact, the only one that I applied for as a graduate position was with the Boeing company and they accepted me, which was so exciting for me. So I got hired as a graduate engineer designing, helping to design the 787-9, um, so the Dreamliner, um, and that was an amazing experience. And I got to spend, uh, in the end, I spent about six and a half years designing commercial airplane wing structure for the Boeing company. Um, so that included the 787, the 737 MAX, where I got to go and work in the US for that, uh, which was an amazing experience living and working over there. Um, and then the 777X as well. Um, and then I kind of hit this point where I'd been watching industry for a while. Um, and, you know, I was, I was loving doing structural design of aircraft. It's very technically challenging, but kind of realised the image that I had of myself as an engineer, um, you know, wasn't quite being fulfilled, you know, becoming this really, you know, deep specialist in, the, in this type of design. And so I'd been looking around the world and had seen so much digital technology developing and starting to feel guilty about my lack of software capability. Um, and so... Um, I, I started getting interested in how I was going to, you know, build my skills there and uh, an opportunity cropped up to switch over into R&D for robotics um, in the advanced production systems team at Boeing Research and Technology. Um, and I took it. And so, you know, that's been an amazing journey I've been on since about 2017 um, into robotics and developing, um, you know, my digital technology capability um, and software particularly. Um, and then uh, I started actually just through pure chance, um, a friend giving me a trial flight, I started flying helicopters. So finally got to that back, back to that place of I'm going to be a pilot um, and started training actually while I was still in the robotics team at Boeing. Um, and then, you know, the ground shifted for Boeing a little bit. This was pre-COVID. I don't want to pretend like I predicted COVID, but um, with some of the woes that they were having with the 737 MAX recertification, I could see that some of the future developments they were looking at were going to be on hold, um, you know, potentially one of the first things that might get hit with that is R&D funding. Um, and I could see that, you know, my potential development in robotics might slow, um, you know, in the Boeing company, definitely, you know, I was a very experienced engineer, was going to need my leadership skills. And I was a little bit worried that, you know, I wasn't going to be able to get what I needed to anymore. So I took the plunge and left the mothership um, <laughs> that had taught me how to be an engineer. Um, I finished off my commercial pilot's license um, and then COVID hit. So I was, I was looking around at what my options would be. And I found a little company called AOS, who's doing um, some really important R&D and robotics for Australia right now for um, a couple of different primary industries. Um, and then I've also since then got work flying helicopters. Um, and I also started a master's in computer science as well, specialising in computational perception and robotics. 
Listen, this is this isn't enough. I'm sure you should be throwing in a tennis career in there as well. I mean, really, what's the matter with you? <laughs> I mean, my head's spinning just keeping up with all listening to what you've done. I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot in two minutes of someone's whole life in two minutes. So. <laughs> well, listen, you and I share something. We have something in common. I'm the youngest of five children as well, and um, certainly my mom. I don't know if she actually liked babies because by the time I came along, I think she was just over the baby thing yeah. and just went like raise yourself but you know just touching on your your point of your dad um being like way ahead of his time and actually being a a, a house dad um well you know like what we were like a housewife the house dad like whatever and um i i I don't ever experience it because I've spoken to other, and I know of other men that they've they've actually nearly had a, an identity crisis because they, you know, your identity is so closely linked to what you do, especially for men. To take that away, how did did you see any of that in the time that he was there? Yeah, so I mean, you know, it ended up by chance. You know, my mom and dad, mm-hmm. I, you know, I love their mantra. I've adopted a lot of it. Um, you know, I'm very proud to be their daughter. You know, they they really just did what was right for each of them at the time. Um, and at the time, actually, what had happened is my dad had resigned. He'd cracked it, and his boss had had enough of what he was dealing with, and he resigns. And then I think not long after that, my mum got a really good opportunity when she was doing some contracting work. Um, you know, that aligned perfectly. So they went. I think she might have been pregnant with my brother at the time Um, and they sort of went oh well let's take the plunge and she was going to take the job and deal with the complexity of the fact that she was going to have a baby Um, and you know what I did see was and I started to learn about was um, as I got a little bit older while my grandparents were still around they got quite a lot of heat from each of their sets various sets of parents you know my dad repeatedly got told by his mother-in-law that he was bludging off my mom you know, the implication being that he wasn't, you know, which I found confusing. She was quite a feminist, you know, and I was really proud of that grandma, um, you know, and I was a bit confused because the implication is that raising children then isn't hard, you know, and that he's a bludger, you know, and I was like, hang on, I don't think that's the case. Um, So he definitely dealt with, you know, some um, difficult um, attitudes from the people around him. I know, you know, a lot of doubters existed um, of, you know that of them going with that path and she she had an amazing career and it just made sense like it kept going you know she she did phenomenally well I think in the end she was basically CIO of Treasury at the end of her career um she's on LinkedIn you could look her up if you want Helen Austin um, will, yeah <laughs> she was awesome but you know talking to dad he just said we just didn't listen to anybody you know we did what we we knew was right for us um and he loved raising the kids he's a wonderful dad um he also had a lot of side projects he's really interested in investment um he got good at doing a lot of the, um, you know, redevelopment around the house, that kind of thing, Um, you know, between that and some of his other passions and raising the kids, he kept himself plenty busy and plenty happy. I I certainly don't think he would say that he wished he'd been in the office all day, every day at defence instead of raising us kids. Oh, no, look, I think it's just, I just think that's the best story ever. And and the the point being happy fulfilled adults and don't listen to other people in stereotypes of what you're supposed to be doing. And I suspect you very much going to be um, an apple that doesn't fall very far from the tree there. And you will go and carve out what you want to do, regardless of, you know, general consensus of opinions around that. And I think that that should be for most people because you, you, you know, you've got one life and in a blink of an eye, your life is over and you go like, what was that all about? And who was I listening to at the end of the day? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, that's one of definitely one of my mantras is it's right now you know that's part of the reason you know people are like oh my god you've got so much going on it's like yeah you know I'm trying to make the most of every minute that I've got you know especially at the moment like I'm I'm super blessed to be 
you know, um, living in a country of so much privilege, I've got a great education and I can earn, you know, a good income with what I do. You know, um, I've got my health, which might not always be the case, you know, like right now I'm, I'm physically and mentally about as good as I'm probably going to be in the rest of my life. So I might as well, you know, cash in while I can. <laughs> I suspect you've got a few more years, but let's not go into that. So, <laughs> so you've, you've had quite a solitary journey in terms of being um, the woman, um, the only woman on your team. So how have you managed this and, and what lessons are there are for other people who may be in a similar situation? Yeah, so definitely, you know, um, I did a presentation for women in robotics just recently and um, and through some questions leading up to that, I sort of did a, a bit of a um, look back on my time and how much time I'd spent as the only woman in the room. And it, it's a lot of the time, you know, especially since switching to robotics, actually. Um, I would say that the percentage of women is higher in aerospace engineering than it is in, in robotics and computer science. Um, but, it, you know, I think the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, how have I managed it? I haven't really most of the time had to manage it at all. You know, one thing that frustrates me is we spend a lot of time highlighting gender differences. But through my career, I would say I've, I've found that, you know, there's more difference between people based off personality and their life experience and their backgrounds generally than there is in just the distinction of gender. You know, the men that I work with are very similar to me in so many ways. You know, we have a lot of the same interests. We have a lot of the same personality traits that make us engineers you know um the majority of the time I feel at home even though you know I look different (laughs) Um, and so most of the time I haven't had to manage it um but what I would say is you know similar to what you were saying about not listening to people um and just getting getting on with what you know um is the right thing you know that's got me through a few times when I've had to deal with you know that little bit of misogyny or feeling like I'm being held back a little bit you know blatantly by the, the way that I look rather than you know my skills speaking for me um, and, you know, in the end, um, there is nothing anyone can do to stop you from getting where you need to go. And remembering that when I'm dealing with those kinds of situations um, is helpful. Um, and, it, you know, it is, it is lonely, but at the same time, I've always been able to find supporters. Um, and I remember asking uh, one of the managers at Boeing, actually, her name's Sarah McSweeney. Hi, Sarah, if you're listening. Um, she's a legend. I remember asking her um, a long time ago about how she'd managed to get to where she did. She's a real trailblazer. She's chair of Aviation Aerospace Australia now, um, you know, tremendous success. And uh, she said, oh, it's just really important to find your supporters, mm-hmm. you know, like in that group of amazing men. Um, occasionally there is someone who's, you know, not the ideal person to work with. And I think that's true for men and women. Um, and, it, it, you know, if you're feeling singled out, what you need to do is get, you know, some of the, your supporters on side. Find that guy that you trust you know, and you feel understands you and help them to understand what you're dealing with and get them in there fighting that battle with you. And, you know, whenever, I, when I got that advice from Sarah, I really thought about it. And I've, I've picked supporters through my career that have helped me to understand the, what I'm dealing with and the best way to fight it. You know, they'll, they'll literally stand up in meetings and help support you if they realise that that's a, a problem. So I would absolutely advise, you know, any women out there in a, in a domain where they feel like they're a bit outnumbered, you know, find that guy you trust and, and get him on your team and, and helping you out with these problems because I guarantee once they realise the problems are there, they will want to help you. Yeah, I can't. I agree with you 100%. CK um, calls them the champions. Find your champions. So if you're not in the room and um, and your name is mentioned, you know, they're going to back you up. They're going to sing your praises. And, uh, you know, I think we have champions. We cultivate them throughout our life anyway. But I, I think for women... 
um, particularly in, in this industry, is that you may just need to be a little bit more focused and mindful about it and intentional of cultivating them. Yeah, and I think it's easy, you know, I found particularly when I've been battling, you know, maybe a couple of things at, at a time I'm struggling with, you know, maybe a tough technical challenge, maybe I'm in a, a more difficult team generally, we've got lots of deadlines, you know, maybe the environment is tougher generally. It is easy to focus on that negative comment that comes from that guy over there, you know, I would, I would, you know, I guess this would be advice for everybody, men, women alike, um, you know, like focus on what you've got in common. You know, there's so much in common, so much more than what is different. Even with someone who's, a, you know, a totally different person to you, the reality is you're in the same place at the same time for a reason um, and there's so much that you have in common. And if you can focus on that rather than the differences, then, the, you know, your ability to, you know, succeed yourself and with your team is just so much higher. I love that attitude. You know what? And it's basically a win-win situation. You know, like let's let's enhance the positive because sure as hell, if you start focusing on the negative, like you can spend your whole day there. And um, we're obsessive little creatures, aren't we? You know, and someone didn't look at me the right way or who knows what we can tangent, we can go. There's a lot to be said for just letting things go. Just move on and don't, you know, and I think also most people you spend far more time yourself thinking oh my goodness I've done something wrong or I've offended someone or someone's offended me and the other person isn't even aware of half the time you know like it was just it's not even on their radar and you and hear you upsetting yourself yeah absolutely it's funny there was a, a patch um earlier on in my career you know I was at the four or five year mark um and I had some, um, you know, a, a little bit of a difficult run with a particular manager that I was, I was dealing with. And there was some stuff that he'd said that had seemed, you know, quite personal, um, you know, unfairly critical. And, you know, I was, I was pretty distressed because, you know, I was doing my best. Um, and, you know, I felt like I communicated well and I thought we had a good relationship. Um, and I remember chatting with one of my other colleagues, Justin, um, who was actually, you know, a really good friend and pal all the way through my career at Boeing. And he gave me a saying, which is a little bit cynical, but I think it, you know, it really helped to set me free, which is he said, do not attribute to malice that which can be explained by incompetence. <laughs> and actually, then I started to broaden my, my view and I went, well, hang on, let's look at how this guy is going with all the other people that he's, he's working with and he's managing. And I looked at it and I realized that that treatment was happening to everybody that he had. And I was like, okay, this isn't about me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that, that really set me free. And, um, you know, the reality was that probably he was dealing, you know, empathy first always for me. He was probably dealing with a whole bunch of stuff that I had no idea how hard it was. And it was very difficult for him to not, you know, act out a little bit on who he was dealing with when he was having to answer for things. So, you know, like just stepping back and going, hang on, is this really about me or are they dealing with some other stuff that I don't really understand? And that totally changed my mindset. Um, and that changed how I responded to things too. And then in the end, you know, I ended up in a much more positive position with that person because I just stopped taking it personally. Yeah, you know, and it's like a negative spiral because they say something, the person reacts negatively. So whatever they're dealing with in the first instance is then solidified in their mind. Like Paul, you know, he may have thought he was a, a bad manager and, you know, we have to be, um, I read a saying, if you if you know how, a posit how positive negative energy is, you will never think a negative thought again in your life. And it's a little bit like this, that, you know, kudos for you and the maturity you're showing that stand back and just see the bigger picture, you know, because again, like we, we're so centered on ourselves, we think the world revolves around us. And, you know, like it's very hard to get out of this mindset, actually, it doesn't. And there are 8 million people, and we've got our role to play every day. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, yeah, you've summarized it perfectly. <laughs>
<laughs> so now your current role at AOS, what are you doing, man? What are you working on? Um, so I'm a technical lead engineer in robotic systems. Um, so I have a couple of uh, roles with that at the moment. So um, the first one is I'm leading the architectural design um, of a project for the government that's defence related um, in our sort of main core technology, which is called CBDI, which is um, essentially a, an explainable AI framework, software framework um, for distributed agent systems. Um, so I think, you know, an application anywhere where you, you essentially have a team of people maybe doing that work. Um, you know, you can also have teams of software systems working together um, and that's happening all the time. You know, the internet essentially is that, um, you know, there's a lot of different potential applications. Field robotics is a great application for that. So you can imagine maybe you've got a surveillance team of a robot and a drone and they're out there, you know, trying to, you know, in a field somewhere, trying to understand, you know, um, maybe how many of a particular type of crop I've got in my field, something like that. Um, and, you know, the CBDI framework enables um, a whole bunch of conversation to happen between those. Um, it enables a resiliency of how, um, you know, the goals are achieved for the collective team so they can be redelegated between different teammates. They can share their beliefs of the world. Um, and probably what I think is the best thing about the system is um, the explainable aspect. So the framework is built on a cognitive model called beliefs, desires and intentions. Um, and I think as we go forward, um, with more and more machine learning um, and deep learning based technologies solving some of our problems for us, um, you know, being able to explain uh, why a system, an automated system is doing what it's doing in a way that humans can understand, um, you know, is really important. Like the, the machine learning algorithms have a whole bunch of reasoning that we just can't interpret. We're not very good at understanding how it learns. Um, whereas if you can use a system like CBDI and actually represent that in terms of your beliefs, you know, the system's beliefs of the state of the world, um, its desires, so what it really hopes to do, so what goals, et cetera, it's been delegated um, and its intentions. So based off my belief of the world and what I want to do, I'm going to go and action this plan. Um, you know, that's a format that enables people to really easily interrogate it, including, you know, people who aren't experts in robotics or software. Um, so that's really exciting. I think it's important technology for defence. So that's one aspect of what I do. Um, and the other one is I'm leading an um, autonomous vehicle project that's for an off-road application in agriculture. So we're partnering with a whole bunch of industry, including um, Centre for Robotic Vision and QUT and Peter Cork's team, um, as well as uh, UNE Smart Farming, um, Department of Primary Industries in New South Wales, um, and then uh, Monero Farming Systems, Treasury Wine Estates, um, to look at an autonomous vehicle for selective weed spraying. Um, so that's a, a fun problem. Um, there's quite a lot of technology out there in precision agriculture that does exist, um, but typically for broadacre crops where you've got a brown soil and a green plant cropping up. Um, so from a computer vision perspective, that's a much easier problem. Um, but what we're looking at is pastures and vineyards where you've got a little bit more complex and dynamic environment. Um, so that, you know, just the weeding problem is a, is a big problem, but also the autonomous vehicle um, everybody thinks of, you know, Waymo or Uber doing their um, autonomous vehicles um, on the road. Um, and though that's an unstructured environment too, it's a much more structured environment than, you know, trying to get a vehicle to successfully traipse around a paddock. Um, and so that's a really fun problem, um, getting to partner with a whole bunch of Australian industry, some of the best researchers in the country in this space. Um, it's a tremendous privilege. And my job is really to bring the whole system together. So I'm the, the technical lead engineer on that.
Listen, it's fascinating. And thank goodness you're actually collaborating with all of them because they're all doing little bits of work in the space. And I missed the program on ABC of Smart Farms. I think there was a whole um, hour long, yeah, but like excellent that and that you all know about it. Um, the company um, Agris, I think, is that in Sydney with... Um, yeah, I mean, he's also, because I, I saw a presentation of him, um, Salah's presentation in terms of the work that they're doing there. So, I mean, the technology, like it is already existing in some form, but not specifically, as you say, for what, what you were trying to aim it for. Yeah, I mean, agriculture in Australia is in a tough position. Um, you know, uh, there's Swarm Farm, a couple of others, you know, um, University of Sydney and spin-offs from there have done an enormous amount of work. But for some reason, the technology is still always seeming to struggle to get traction. And, you know, I think part of the problem is uh, though agriculture from a um, geospatial perspective is huge in Australia. Australia is massive. Um, the industry itself isn't that big from a, a, you know, a financial and economic perspective. And so um, it's, you know, Australia can't expect the um, big conglomerates through the world that, you know, develop this type of advanced technology to come in and want to solve our problems for us. Um, you know, our environment is very unique um, and, you know, Australia runs the risk of, you know, falling behind from a technology front. Yeah. Um, you know, I was talking to um, one of the leaders at Department of Farming Industries and he was saying that's happening even from a, you know, genetics of crops perspective um, because, the, you know, the farmers don't have enough money to fund the R&D themselves. You know, they're struggling to stay afloat. Um, you know, and, and like I said, some of the big technologists in the world that have, you know, a lot of capital behind them as big companies, it's not worth their investment for the Australian market. Um, and so who's going to do this work? We need to do it, you know, um, and someone needs to come in and help some of those university-based um, startups um, and research groups to get their great research off the ground and actually accessible for the farmers. And that's definitely what AOS is hoping to do with this project. Yeah, we need some. We need some of our heavy hitters that have got deep pockets to start funding, um, you know, smaller, smaller startups and go. And I, it always sort of amazes me a little bit when they don't really actually see, you know. I, I suppose you know, for any investor, they want to see their return of investment. But sometimes it's not always obvious in the first five years when a little company is just struggling to get out of the starting blocks and get out there. But if you hold the faith and you you just go, listen, this is worth it. Um, I think at, at the end of the day, because what happens is Australian companies go overseas and then it becomes and it's not related to Australia anymore. And, the, and those companies cannot get back into Australia again as an Australian invention. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, our, our specific project is funded by um, a Commonwealth grant. And I think that's a really important aspect of it as well, you know, um, I think COVID kind of highlighted some things for me about the, you know, the, um, you know, sensitivity of the world and the, the global economy. Um, and it made me really want to just protect all the stuff um, that we have that's so valuable to Australia in terms of our natural resources and, you know, in-house capability. And I think, you know, we really need to, yeah, like you said, you know, maybe um, our more wealth, some of our more, more wealthy business groups um, and the government try to, you know, shine a spotlight on this of, hey, you know, we really need to be able to be capable of this technology in-house. No one's going to come in and solve these problems for us. Mm. If we don't invest, um, you know, both from a government and a, an industry perspective, then what's going to happen? You know, our farmers aren't going to be able to afford to keep going. You know, they, one of them was telling me a story about how he drives around all day checking the water level in his troughs. And I was just like, that's a $2 sensor, but they don't have 4G. You know, yeah. like how do you set up a network 
um, for automation for that, you know, it just breaks your heart once you realise the reality of, you know, the, the primitive technologies that they're working with and how hard those individual people have to work just to try to support it, you know. So when I see stuff like, you know, the fruit picker robot, that kind of thing, I'm like, yes, yeah let's do it come on like we've got to you know we need someone to fund that that technology is it's close you know like I've I'm one of my main things I would say that I'm good at is you know getting rubber to road turning idea into like real thing Um, and you know if we can just get some funding going into those guys that take those great concepts and turn them into something that's you know practical and pragmatic for a farmer to use like we just yeah we definitely need that investment well, you know, I was reading today that there's a company in Brisbane that developed a system that can, from as far as 500 kilometres away, alert a plane that they they getting to the wrong runway. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if you read it. I get uh, I don't know, I get these weird newsletters that I sort of flick through. So a, a Brisbane company's done that. Um, I won't mention that uh, there's now class action against Boeing as well in the process as well. So we'll leave that to the side. That was inevitable. I don't work there anymore. So no, 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 no. But that's in, that's inevitable. Like this was coming for airlines. Like people are going to start taking class actions against them. But anyway, that's a completely different topic. So tell me your day. Like you, you're doing your master's degree. You, um, you work full time. Um, you helicopter pilot over the weekend. Um, do you get time for exercise? Like, tell me, take me through a Joe day. Um, so uh, honestly, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to paint the, the picture too honestly because um, it might turn people off, and I don't want them to discourage them, but you know, be discouraged from trying to do what I'm doing. But um, it's it's pretty tough, like to to handle all three full time job in a very complex industry. You know, my days are hard at AOS. Um, and then also study my university course, particularly actually at the moment, the university course is hard. So I'm doing a unit uh, that's called graduate operating systems that I realized from Reddit is actually the reputed hardest one. And most of the guys are, you know, trying to avoid it at all costs, you know, like literally once I finish here, I'm going to go back to coding my proxy server and cache process and then all the IPC shared memory and stuff like it's unbelievably complex at the moment. So like, it's a bad time to ask this question. Um, but, you know, and then with the flying as well, the flying stuff because, um, you know, anyone who's worked in aviation will tell you that even in normal times it's tough to actually get a gig um, as a, you know, a paid pilot. Um, it's almost impossible. You have to work on the ground for a long time, get in with the right people. It's really tough, let alone in COVID. So what I've landed on is a gold mine for the fact that I've actually got the opportunity to fly part-time. Um, and so I have to protect that. And aviation is very... Um, inconsistence all over the place depending on the weather or you know the conditions or the machines whether or not they're available that kind of stuff so I have to be ready to fly at a drop of a hat like if my my chief engineer called me the night before and be like yep you're flying all day tomorrow and so when I'm trying to manage my time (laughs) with uni assessments that are due and then I've got to you know for example travel quite a little bit with work um that's difficult so I kind of live life on the critical path that's the way I see in my head you know unless it's absolutely essential right now I'm not doing it um, um, and so my days don't end up super regular, um, you know, but a standard day for me might look like, you know, I catch the train, I work in the city um, for AOS, so I catch the train in, I'm looking at lectures for university on the train all the way in, it's 35 minute train, so I usually can squeeze in 32 minutes of lectures, usually I run them at 1.2 times or 1.5 times to try and uh, speed that process up. <laughs> um, and then at AOS, you know, my day consists of, um, you know, it can be anything from chatting with chief engineers and systems engineers at the Commonwealth about, you know, some crazy complex systems architecture for some of their technology to, um, you know, brainstorming algorithms for, you know, off-road ground filters to, 
um, calibrating cameras to then, you know, being, you know, working with some of our other subject matter experts like agronomists who can't use Microsoft Teams. So I might end up being like IT help desk on Microsoft Teams for an hour while I'm like teaching them how to use it, you know. Um, and then I might go into a meeting talking about like high level business requirements for AOS and, you know, how to get some of our technology commercialized, that kind of thing. So my day is, is a lot of context switching and then I'll come back on the train. Um, and then when I get home, often it'll be logbook stuff for uh, prepping flying or writing code for university. Um, thankfully, my partner Rob is an amazing cook and he loves to cook. And at the moment, he does all the cooking. Uh, without oh. him, I would, I, I would not be able to do it, honestly. So like a teammate is essential for what, what I'm doing right now. Um, and exercise is, you know, probably once a week if I'm lucky. I, I play a little bit of tennis again now, actually. I came back to tennis after a 15-year hiatus. Um, and so I squeeze a little bit in, um, but not a lot. And each day tends to vary a lot because of that critical path thing. Like I was saying, you know, to manage all of it, I have to be very flexible and ready to sort of drop one thing because, okay, that isn't important now. And I've got to pick up this other thing that I need to get done right now. So, No, listen, you sound as though you've got the recipe right. Because the first thing is you have to identify the, the critical thing and what's most important at the time. A lot of people get confused about what's critical, you know, that hierarchy of what's important, what's critical, what's urgent, and, you know, like the whole, the four, um, the quadrants. And further to um, good life advice is um, choosing the life, right life partner is 95% of life success is attributed to choosing the right partner. So, I think you 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 sound as though you've hit on the right guy here that goes, listen, this is what Joan needs at the moment is good nutritious meals when she gets home and I'm the person to do it. So actually my husband used to do it as well. Like it's not that I, I don't enjoy cooking, but he, he um it was his love language. So, you know, he'd, he'd cook up these lavish meals that I, of course, would clean up afterwards, but nonetheless, I, I'm not complaining. And then you take two bites and you'd say, because um, uh, we offer a concert and we go in, which means and, 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 you know, myself and my kids would be sitting there chewing along and, and we'd give the verdict. <laughs> so, I mean, he hung out for that. So anyway, like um, I'm deviating a little bit, but yes, you know, like um, I think the, the ability to, to be flexible and go, yes, this is what I need to do. And um, I think for a lot of people, they get quite stuck in they they very they creatures of habit, so they they really like boundaries along their day. And um, I don't actually think a lot of people can do what you're doing. And you look as though you're flourishing. So I I think maybe this is just going to be your trajectory. Yeah, I think. I mean, it's. It's interesting, I, you know, a lot of people tell me that I'm brave. A lot of the decisions that I've made along the way where, you know, you know, I'm kind of running from the herd usually. There's a lot of pushback. You know, there was a lot of very confused aerospace engineers where I was on a good, you know, trajectory for a career designing aeroplanes um, where I went, nah, sorry, I'm going to go be a roboticist now. And there was a lot of confused people at Boeing when I left um, because at the time I, w I didn't have a job to go to. Um, and, you know, to other people that was terrifying. But, you know, um, for me, I, I guess I, I've done it. I've done hard things long enough that I believe that I'll be able to do it. And I've also, you know, I've had the reality of life happen as well, right? You know, the idea of, um, you know, maybe failing one of my exams or whatever, like I'm not that afraid of it anymore because in the context of life and, uh, you know, the people that you love and everything, it's just not that important, you know? So I think the perceived risk for me over time has reduced with taking the load on and knowing that I might drop something you know, I've got a lot of a lot of balls in the air. The fear of dropping one of the balls is is less, um, and then I the confidence that I won't anyway 
um, is higher because, you know, I've, I've, you know, why, why would it be a problem? You know, I'm just, and if it is, well, it's fine. I'll handle it. You know, I, I think, you know, I, I trust myself after, you know, 10 years of being a professional engineer and trying to do hard things. Um, and I also, you know, I, I trust my safety net. You know, you mentioned that it's so important, the life partner, um, you know, Rob, you know, I'm just, yeah, unbelievably grateful that I found him because he understands me. He's, he's quite similar to me. Um, you know, he understands the aviation bit, which is confusing for some engineers, particularly robotics. Um, and, you know, engineering is confusing for any of the pilots that are in aviation. They're like, why would you want to do a boring desk job when you can fly an aircraft? Like, you know, the, the fact that I want to do both confuses people all the time. And he, absolutely gets it he's you know a, a really amazing systems engineer himself actually he just got made a manager um and uh ex-race driver so he has a physicality about his life um that's technical as well that he loves um and means that he understands me and then you know my family immediate family as well you know growing up in that family youngest of five my siblings you know my whole world um you know like if you could cut me into quarters I would be one quarter each of them um yeah. you know and uh you know we're very close we're best friends we'd rather spend time with each other that we don't get too much anymore than we would anybody else and you know I know that if for some reason something went wrong they would be there for me just like Rob would be um and you know though I don't believe that I'll drop any of the balls I've got in the air if I do you'll be fine like it, it's okay <laughs> listen I love I love your attitude Joe honestly you know it's trusting the process and just going I, I think um, a lot of A-type personality people have this tendency you want to force things and they go, oh, I have to, I have to be, you know, like I have to push it. And I, I've actually now realised in my life, actually, you don't actually have to push things. You know, you put the building blocks in place and you trust the process to happen because it doesn't matter how much you push. If it's not meant to be, it's not. And you, you take a lot of stress out of the equation when you just take a step back and just go, it's going to be okay. Yeah, I think one of the hardest things that was part of my learning with that, you know, getting to that place was accepting that your dreams change and your goals change. You know, like I said, when I was 15, you know, I, I was just like truly in love with World Rally cars, Formula One cars. You know, I was always going to get to Formula One. That was one of my goals. Um, and actually, I, I, you know, ended up meeting someone who worked for Red Bull Racing and they were like, oh, you're a structure engineer for Boeing. Just call me when you want a job. And then like the appeal kind of wore off for me and I started to realise that actually what I liked was chasing hard things. And it wasn't even really about the, the necessarily the actual end output. Some of the time it is, like sometimes it, it really is about the specific um, end, end goal. But I also, it made me realise something about myself, which is that I enjoy the process of doing, you know, and being capable and that I needed to be okay with letting go of some of those goals. You know, um, I remember one of the uh, girls who um, I used to kind of informally mentor at, at Boeing, she's not there anymore she called me looking for some advice after I'd left the company um, because she'd realized that, you know, she probably wasn't enjoying her job the way that she used to. And then she was probably looking for a change. And I remember she called me up and we were doing a video call this was during COVID. And, you know, I, I answered the call and I was like, hello, you know, how are you going? And she just started crying. Oh, and you know, I chatted with her and what I realized was that like she knew what she needed to do, but she was grieving the dream. You know, she'd been living, she'd had this amazing aerospace career so far. She'd only been there five years and she'd done amazing stuff, but she'd realised that it wasn't her dream anymore. And, and, you know, she was sad at letting go of what her 15-year-old self um, had imagined her to be and that it just wasn't who she needed to be anymore. And that, you know, life forces change on you and you yourself naturally change over time. And I think accepting that as part of the journey helps you to not try to force things 
Um, you know, I, I set out with goals knowing that it's very likely that I won't end up there. And that'll probably be because I changed my mind, <laughs> you know, not, not and, and because the world changes around me. So I think, you know, understanding that there's only so much you can control anyway, even, even within yourself, um, is very important to, you know, being content in your day to day. Speaking of mentors, do you have a mentor yourself? That is a really good question. So I don't, um, and I haven't had many, I've had two, I guess, where I explicitly sought them out in the whole of my career. And that's it. Um, and the first one was a guy named Dave Evans, who's an ex chief engineer of Boeing Aerostructures Australia. And I sought him out when I was, I think maybe two or three years into, uh, some deep structural analysis, uh, of airplane wings. Um, and I was looking at the people around me and I was like, Oh, they just know so much. I want to try and catch up. And so really what he became for me was more of a coach. You know, I, I would bring really hard structures problems to him and we'd work through it together and he'd teach me his mindset and approach for, you know, starting big and then narrowing in on the complex part of the problem. Um, so it was very technical coaching. Um, and the second one that I had, um, I sought out once I joined the uh, Boeing robotics team in Melbourne, which was Marty Sharsky. So he's the senior um, like principal robotics engineer there, as well as an associate technical fellow at the Boeing company. Super brain, um, just amazing technical capability. Um, and, you know, with him, it ended up similar. We kind of went 50-50, uh, like pair programming, specific technical coaching, um, and also uh, technical strategy. You know, he would his mastermind from a business technical strategy, what technology is the Boeing company going to need? You know, he's magic at that. And I learned so much from those conversations. Um, but it's a really interesting question. I've always struggled um, I guess I would say with finding mentors, um, you know, I feel like there's two things I really need from a mentor. One, and the first one's probably the most important, is that I feel like they need to understand what it is I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to be. And that that's really hard, um, you know, particularly, like I said, you know, the fact that I'm splitting myself up a little bit at the moment. Um, I usually find most people push back pretty hard on that and they think it's a stupid idea. Uh, but my vision's really clear in my head. So they need to be able to understand me and what, what I'm trying to do. Um, and the second one is, you know, I'm always looking for someone who I want to um, embody some of or, or all of what they do. You know, I'm looking for someone who I want to be like. And both Dave and Marty were definitely that, particularly Marty. You know, he embodies much of the technical leadership capability that I'd really like to be and he'd been through some stuff in his career that made me feel like he understood my shift into robotics and why I was doing that so um he was a wonderful coach slash mentor I would say in that respect um but it's interesting because I had someone comment that they were surprised that I hadn't explicitly sought out a female mentor um and I was surprised by the comment uh partly because my filter is never gender related um, but you know, obviously they felt that, you know, maybe I would want, want to look for that kind of support, but the reality is, and it like, it devastates me to say it is that I've, I've never found a woman that has embodied both the capability that I want. And I've also felt as in a position to understand what I'm doing. And I certainly have hardly found any men that it's true for. So I, I mean, it's funny cause I, I don't practice what I preach. You know, I preach the, you know, value of mentorship to a lot of my underlings all the time, but, um, yeah, I, I you know, it's not something I'm explicitly seeking out at the moment. I think at the moment they just tell me that I can't sustain what I'm doing right now and I don't need to hear that. <laughs> Listen, like, no, I agree with you. You have to, I, I was on a discussion yesterday where um, mentors, it's crucial because as you said, they have to understand you and um, you actually have to find the mentors. Like it's not as though someone can knock on your door and say, I'm here to mentor you. It doesn't work that way. And 
you you have to make sure that your mentors have got your best interest at heart and that's not always also true so like i agree with everything that you said it's it's um it's actually rare and i think at your level of of how you've evolved is to find someone that you go okay you're probably going to find much much older people or like they've been in the industry for many many years so they can condense what they've learned and say okay listen here's some pitfalls for you to look out in but you know um I've got the same thing. I mean, I, I look up and I look at a lot of people. I look at what they're doing, but I go, well, A, am I interested in someone telling me specific things? Like technically, you know, you could probably be my, you, you not, not probably, you could be my mentor and tell me what to do. But, you know, am I that interested in it? That Well, there's a bit of a question mark about it. You know, I, I sort of find, um, you know, some people, they're cats that walk on their own and, you know, maybe you're a little bit of, you You may be one of those people because you've got such a strong support network and other people that you look up to just starting with your own family, you know, so it's not as though you have to look very far. You could just look to your siblings and there could be things that they're giving you like subtle, um, like little mentoring tips that you, you know, and it's not even tips, you probably just watch them, you know, like we, we mentor each other every day just by our behavior. You look at people and you go, is that cool behavior is that okay are you allowed to be doing that so we're walking advertisements anyway for just just life I always say to my kids be very polite to the bus driver because you have got no idea what he's doing and he's got your life in his hands so literally it's <laughs> like I go I'm literal I start from the ground like I go you know just just be polite you know just have basic manners and and you will get along fine in life but I mean that's far more simplistic in terms of what you're talking about here but I, I probably see you Joe, that you would you would evolve into um not that I'm suggesting that you do this at this point in your time because you you are pretty busy but um someone with your depth of understanding of the technical world that you're in as well as other things that you've experienced um I, I think any woman out there could throw their shoes off to you to get you as a mentor so I'm not by any chance advocating that everyone should not knock on your door but I'm saying like ladies this woman you should knock on her door <laughs> yeah I mean honestly um I I really enjoy um I, like I love the younger people so that's one thing that I see as a mistake for the people who are experienced they don't listen enough to the kids coming through you know in AOS we've got a couple of junior engineers that are just awesome um, you know, even a couple of our interns that haven't even graduated yet, you know, one of them, um, I bothered to have a conversation with him and realised that he's been an amateur photographer since he was 12 and he knows everything about encoding, decoding, you know, um, compression of images, you know, a whole bunch of stuff and, and, you know, the pros and cons of going, you know, a whole bunch of stills versus video for if you want to do some post-processing, you know. And I realised, like, this kid is an absolute camera nerd and he had a whole bunch of information that's super relevant to my job and I was like, oh, well, you tell me what I should do. And then he'd come up with a whole bunch of ideas and, you know, that I've always been a really big, um, I guess, supporter of spending time with like the younger generation because they can teach me. And actually when I was at Boeing, I had a lot of, you know, a lot of the um, younger engineers that I used to chat to a lot, kind of, I wouldn't say mentor, almost kind of casually life coach. Cause often, you know, the problems that most of the people um, that I work with, when I bother to have a conversation with them, it's balancing work with life, you know, some problem that's going on with work and then some other problem that's happening outside work. And the combination of the two is usually the bit that's hard for them. Um, and, you know, I've learned so much through that. So, you know, I mean, if people want to reach out, even if it's, you know, like at the moment, I wouldn't say I can take on 20, 20 mentees, 
Um, but, you know, even if it's just a, a one particular conversation, if somebody's, you know, they've got a, a decision point in their career or, you know, they're thinking about making a switch into robotics or software the way I have, but they don't know where to start, you know, definitely feel free to, to contact me. Um, you know, I'll, I'll almost certainly learn more out of the interaction than they will. <laughs> It's most generous of you, Joe, and you've hit on the point. Like, uh, if you walked away from a conversation having learned something, like your time is well spent. Oh, you always do. I mean, like you said, you were talking about my immediate family being uh, mentors. My sister Alex, she's uh, she's the one that's a marketing manager. Actually, she's a tremendous leader. All of my people skills and and learning about the world really comes from her, and she basically runs my life. Actually, um, she's <laughs> she's my Melbourne mum, and she looks after me a lot. But really, I you know, like you said, um, the ability to learn even from the bus driver, like everyone around you, one has some amazing story. If you bother to ask them about their lives, everybody's done some amazing stuff and been through some really tough things. Um, but you can literally learn from anyone and I think you know if if there's one message I would get out is that you know especially for the older more experienced engineers don't underestimate the younger engineers yeah they don't have the experience for you know maybe defining problems and understanding context of things but some of their toolkit is going to be better than yours and they're going to have a better way to solve a problem than you and you should start listening yeah two years from now what what is your your world looking like for you I mean, I want to say I'd be sleeping. <laughs> That's what I dream about. Um, I mean, two years isn't very long. I don't know about you, but COVID has definitely sped up time for me. Um, it was speeding up anyway as I get older. Um, you know, in two years, I'll be nearly done my master's. So I should have um, by then as a substantial breadth in coding in a whole bunch of languages because the master's really pushes you on that um, and a very solid, you know, foundational understanding of computer systems um, you know, I will have been at AOS probably leading a couple of implementations of our autonomous vehicles. So I would say I would hopefully um, have some uh, good technical expertise in, you know, some of the traditional um, autonomous vehicle technologies. So multimodal sensing, uh, you know, navigation, path planning, localization, those technologies, um, which is important for me for my toolkit. Um, and then, you know, from a flying perspective, I'd hope that, you know, based on flying part time, I'd have 300 or 400 hours more um, under my belt um, from, you know, a, a logbook perspective of being pilot in command. Um, but, you know, I, after that, I don't know. I'm, I'm, at the moment, I'm in a very toolkit phase. You know, I'm really building capability still. Um, you know, I'm trying to use my leadership skills where I can in AOS, you know, um, definitely provides me a really nice platform for doing both um, because I'm passionate about both. So I get to develop my technical skills and, and leverage what I've got and, and learn more as well as then be a leader, which is a nice balance for me. But, um, you know, I really, you know, I really want to get my breadth of problem solving capability, um, you know, as, as like a constant for me, you know, I'm, I'm constantly building that. That's my, and that's, you know, I've got my head down at the moment, just working my ass off. So. Listen, I can't, I can't think of a, a better or um, more fulfilled person than I'm sitting and talking to you. You look happy. You, um, you're absolutely glowing talking about your journey here. So I'm sure if you get to the point where you go, any of this is not working for you anymore, you'll have the sense and um, the wherewithal to go, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to change. And that's that. So any closing thoughts you want to leave our listeners with? Um, well, I mean, I'm assuming that most of the listeners are going to be robotics technologists or robotics enthusiasts, so already working in technology. Um, uh, but, you know, based off that, I would say, um, you know, probably the first one would be, um, 
you know, extend yourself beyond the immediate context of your work that you're doing. You know, um, especially in Australia, we're just so privileged. You know, we have this amazing technology base. We all have educations. We've got access to each other, you know, now more than ever, thanks to, um, you know, where COVID has put us from remote capability. You know, um, look around you and the, the context in which you're working and developing your technologies and then, um, you know, extend that out. Who else can benefit from what you're doing? You know, one thing that concerns me a little bit, and I'm sure that's true for others, um, you know, well, I know that's true for others, um, is, you know, machine learning algorithms and embedding them in some of the places where we're doing that now. Um, I love machine learning. I've done a deep learning specialization. I love applying it, particularly in robotics. It solves so many problems for us. Um, but, you know, the reason it's blown up a lot is because of the value that it's got for, you know, uh, industries like finance, um, digital marketing, you know, and when we develop those algorithms, we're embedding our history a little bit into them. Um, and, you know, we tend to, when we do that, we tend to look at, you know, our specific metrics around its performance for its confidence scores and its false positives and false negatives. And we get buried in that, that technical detail of, well, how do I need it to perform on my you know, test set versus my training set. And we're deep in the, in the weeds of that. But the reality is this is going to get applied to, you know, maybe the selection of whether or not someone's, um, you know, appropriate for a loan or um, whether or not they're going to get, um, you know, some targeted advertising that might actually end up not ideal for them. Um, you know, it potentially might continue to relate products, um, you know, to men versus women with a bias that actually we're kind of starting to out evolve. So just remember, you know, as you're developing your technology, you know, consider the life cycle of, of the, the product. And that can go for any engineering. Um, you know, I know at Boeing, they were starting to look beyond what does the customer need it for? And, okay, well, let's design an airplane for, for the customer use case. But also what happens at the end of the life of the airplane? You know, so what, what does that mean for the environment with all those materials that we're using that, you know, don't break down and going to, you know, end up causing a whole bunch of problems in terms of managing them? I think software, we need to think like that too. How, you know, these weights and biases that I'm putting in my machine learning algorithm, how is somebody in the open source community maybe going to pitch that and apply to something that it was never actually designed for? You know, think beyond the, the context um, of what you're doing and, and extend yourself to go, hey, you know, I don't just have, I can not just only solve this problem for my business, but I can make this a problem, um, you know, extend this problem to solving problems for the, the broader community. Um, and the other one I would say is just have, courage of your convictions you know um society has a lot of labels um corporations have a lot of you know traditional streams that they might try to force you down and we love stereotypes you know I, I break the stereotype all the time you know my existence is a you know a rebellion against that um the reality is that none of those i found the stereotypes don't fit anybody even when they look like they do someone might fit the mold of you know the classic ceo or whatever you know and he's a white male if you go and have a conversation with that guy his story will be completely different to what you think so like the stereotypes don't mean anything they're a construct to make our lives easier don't let it steer the ship you know because you think society wants you to be something the reality is everybody is completely different the label stereotypes they don't fit anybody you know, be the, the master of your own fate, um, back yourself, like I said, courage of your convictions, um, you know, and, and do what it is that makes you happy because uh, believe me, nobody fits the stereotype. Yeah, so, so important. Joe, if uh, the audience want to contact you, can I, okay, to put your email address out there? Yeah, definitely. Um, that's totally fine. Please put my email address. Um, and also I have an Instagram page that's called Tech Super Vixen. That's the handle or lowercase. 
Um, and on that, you know, if you want to follow my tech journey, I share a lot of the technical stuff that I'm doing in any given moment. Um, and I also um, share usually a little bit of a like kind of layman's explanation of um, what it is that I'm doing so that anybody can understand it. And actually, that's something I would, I would leave as a message, probably a really important one for all the technologists listening. Um, you know, especially now as everything becomes more advanced, you know, we've got mobile phones um, that are, you know, exceptionally sophisticated computers now with machine learning all over them and a whole bunch of other fancy algorithms, you know, help the people around you to understand it. You know, like let's get computer science into schools. Let's start breaking down the barriers. A lot of my friends, they're terrified of the technology. They think they're not capable of understanding, but they're perfectly capable of understanding the basic hardware of a computer and how this, the software talks to that and, the, you know, the basic concept of a network. It's not actually, you know, it, once you delve into the weeds of any problem, it is complex. But on a simple level, everybody can understand that. And I think, you know, given the... Um, the way technology is heading and it's embedded in everybody everybody's lives. I think as the people who really understand the technology, we need to accept responsibility for the people around us and help them to, you know, work with um, and understand that technology, you know, as safely and, and as efficiently as possible. You know, the more they understand, the better they'll be. Um, so, yeah, if you follow me on my tech page, I tend to do that quite a lot. I'll give someone an introduction of how a, you know, a digital camera sensor really works. Um, you know, maybe some simple stuff about how helicopters fly, like that kind of stuff. Try and encourage people that they can understand the world and what's going on around them. They're more than capable and it's just not that hard. Fabulous. You know what? Yeah, I'm sitting here listening to you thinking you should have like a little school where young kids go into aged care facilities and they get the, the residents up to scratch on just emails, how to work your phone, basic things that connect them to the rest of the world. Because the amount of times that you hear, oh, I'm too old to do this or I can't, and it's not. It's just no one sat down and just taking you through it until you get it. It's not that complex. You just need someone with patience to say to you, don't just relax because you can't learn if you're not relaxed and I know um, my mom in law in South Africa had to get a new phone and like she was going oh you know I said to listen just you you got it just take your time you you'll get through it and now I see her sending me little you know all sorts of things I go where where did she find this like <laughs> she can teach me so Joe listen it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you so much for your time I know like I don't think I need to say how busy you are because I know you are um I look forward to your journey. I, I think you're going to be one of these people that I watch. I've had a couple of people that I've interviewed that I've gone, I've earmarked you for success. So um, I'll be in the background um, just watching you just, just fly. That's all I can say, literally and figuratively. No, thanks, Nikki. I mean, I, I love talking about technology. I'm sure you can tell. Um, so any excuse to do that to a captive audience, I'm always going to take and make room for. So thank you for having me. And um you know, don't forget, we've got to go out for that glass of wine so I can hear your story as well. Oh, no, no, no. We'll talk about that off air. So to my listeners, um, thank you for joining me for another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I look forward to speaking with you next week again.